from all of us at Graceful Truth and Grace Bible Church in Redwood City, to you dads out there, happy Father's Day. We have a message designed just for the day out of Matthew chapter one. Join us, Graceful Truth is up next. How to be a good dad? What does it mean to be a good father? These are questions that oftentimes plague us, and really they shouldn't because Scripture is so clear on the issue. Welcome to Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. And again, Happy Father's Day. Today we'll take a look at a few lessons from a father, and we're in Matthew chapter 1 doing just that. As we celebrate fathers today and understand their role and responsibility as heads of the home, It's our hope and prayer that today's broadcast will bring real encouragement to those who are fathers. With this edition of Graceful Truth, here's Pastor Steve. But this morning I want to speak to you uh, on the subject of uh, fathers and uh, lessons from a father. Uh, This father is found in the Bible, but before we get to the actual text in Matthew chapter 1, I just want to uh, do a little introduction as far as the importance of being a father. This morning we're going to talk about fathers, but like I said earlier, this message is really applicable to everybody here. I really believe that, Dad, nobody is more important than you. Now, I know a couple of weeks ago we did a, a Mother's Day message, and, and that was important too, but I really believe this. I believe that, that dads are the, the core, the key to the family unit. Every month, a little over 300,000 men enter into fatherhood, and they do that with little or no training. I think that it's important that we understand the role of fathers in our houses and our homes today. I mean, moms are great, and they're, they're a key to having a, a, a well-run home, but I also believe that fathers are very important to the household. I read about a country doctor who was delivering the 10th baby of a couple, lived on a farm, and they had one kid per year. Pretty intense, a little overdone, I would say. We need to pray for that mom. But after the the 10th child was delivered, they were sitting around the table and they couldn't figure out a name. They just ran out of names. And so they were talking with the doctor and they said, you know, do you have any ideas for a name? And uh, they said, we've we've had so many kids in the last couple of years, we just run out. And the doctor thought for a second, took a took a sip of his coffee and put it down, and he said, well, personally, I'd call it quits. <laughs> That's pretty good advice for someone who's popped out 10 children in 10 years. But every month, 300,000 men become fathers. And I really believe that today, fatherhood is a vanishing art form in our society today. It's, it's something that men really don't know how to do anymore. And by the time you got it figured out how to be a father, you're out of a job. (laughs) You know, you do it for 18 years and then that's it. Um, And I think there's a couple reasons, just the way to introduce our our text today, that I believe fatherhood is is in trouble in America. And so if you're a dad, I pray that you just tune into these couple words. I think, first of all, media has done a great job of belittling fathers. Every show you watch... Usually the father is the bumbling idiot that can't do anything right, and mom comes in and saves the day. Now, that may be true in some cases, okay, but it's not true across the board. And today in the media, dads are mocked and made fun of at every turn. And so uh, 
as a consequence, fatherhood has been devalued in our culture. I think another reason is the woman's feminist movement has added to this problem. There are some, uh, one lady in the, in the woman's feminist movement said she described a man's role as this, uncertain, undefined, and perhaps unnecessary. Gloria Steinman adds to that, and she said, a, a woman without a man is like a fish without a bicycle. So fatherhood is in serious trouble today in our culture and in our, our society because media belittles it, because the woman's feminist movement takes that. But I think also there's a third reason, and I think that's man's, our, our irresponsibility as fathers. Unfortunately, men in our society today have been really lousy men. And I think that so many men put their personal interests above the interests of their children. They'd rather watch football from the couch rather than play football with the kids in the, in the yard. And that's because a lot of men are self-absorbed. Uh, they're self-serving. After all, they've worked all day. They come home. They deserve a break. You know, they're the provider of the family usually. And, um, you know, women hear that and they just probably want to puke. But God has placed a tremendous responsibility on you as being a father. Tremendous responsibility. And it's squarely placed on your shoulders. You can't squirm out of this because nobody is more important in the family, I think, than dad. And if you turn over to Ephesians chapter 6, I just want to share this verse before we get to the text of our message because I think it speaks so aptly to fatherhood and the importance of what Ephesians chapter 6 Verse 4, he's giving instructions to parents here. And he says, fathers, notice he doesn't say mothers. He says, fathers, do not uh, provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Do not exasperate, one translation reads, your children. It's an emphatic command specifically to dads. Uh, gives one negative thing, don't exasperate your children, but then he gives three positive things here. And I think it's easy to lay that responsibility at the feet of the women in the household. Women are happy to take that up, to do that. And a lot of times they do a, a better job than us men at it. But that doesn't negate the issue. God put that responsibility on us as men to be fathers and to be dads and to do it in a responsible way. And so, Dad, nobody is more important than you are in the household. And when you look at the sociological evidence, just the facts, take the Bible and set it aside for a second and just look into studies that have been done. I just want to share a couple things with you this morning. These are non-biblical statistics. Fatherless daughters, daughters without a father, are 53% more likely to get married as teenagers. They're 111% more likely to have children as teenagers if they don't have a dad. They're 164% more likely to have the birth of a child in illegitimate settings. They're 92% more likely to fail in their marriages when they don't have that father in their life. Dads, you're important. You're important to your family. You're important to your home. If you don't do the job right, dads, you could double the chance of your children not finishing school when you walk out on your family. Fatherless children are 50% more likely to have learning disabilities. In fact, the chance of having a high achiever in your family, they're cut in half the day you walk out away from that family as a father. Fatherless children are 100 to 200% more likely to have emotional and behavioral problems, according to the National Center of Health Statistics. Fatherless young adults are twice as likely to need psychological help. In fact, the, the nation's hospitals 
over 80% of adolescents who are admitted for psychiatric reasons come from a fatherless home. That's a pretty strong indicator, secular statistics that show that fatherhood is important. When you look at the prisons and you look at those incarcerated, fatherless sons are 300 more percent likely to be in prison or incarcerated in state juvenile institutions. 70% of all the kids in state institutions come from fatherless homes. I mean, that's an that's a incredible statistic. Fatherless men are more likely, 35% more likely to have a, a marital failure when they get married. I mean, do you understand why God said he hates divorce? <laughs> that's what he clearly says in his word. That's not his plan. Now, I understand some of you have been through awful divorces and it wasn't your idea and it wasn't your plan. And you know what? Uh, you don't really have any choice in the matter. I understand that and I'm not here to belittle you because of that. But I'm here to try to hold the standard high for any guys who are even thinking about walking out. And I pray there's nobody here this morning that has that in their mind, but you never know. First of all, there in Ephesians, he says, do not exasperate. Do not provoke them to anger. That's what that word means. It means to, to bring them to the point where they're actually hostile. They're angry in their heart. And you notice that the best person in the household to do that is not mom, but who? Dad. Because that's who he addresses. This is the first negative thing he says. He says, Father, don't provoke your kids to anger. And when we live in a society where children under the age of 18 are murdering one another at an alarming rate, you wonder what's going on. One thing that we understand about us men is that we really live in two worlds. As men, we live in two worlds. We live in what I call the positional world, and we live in what I call the personal world. The positional world has to do with our work, with our job, the prestige, the authority, the titles, the degrees, everything else that, that kind of tells a man that someone respects him that it's important to him. That's the positional world that we live in. And as men, we're, we're motivated by that. We're driven by that. Driving the right car, signing with the right pen, carrying the right plastic and all kinds of other stuff, that adds to our egos. And we're just kind of wired toward that kind of mentality. I'm not saying it's wrong. This is who we are. That's why men will pick up a book like In Search of Excellence or The 60-Second Manager or Power Negotiating or, or How to Swim with the Sharks. All those books, they, they appeal to a man who's in the, 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 the positional world, the work environment. How can they better themselves? But there's also the personal world of a man. And a lot of times we don't do very well in our personal world. We don't read too many touchy-feely books as men, usually. But I want to ask you the question, when your kids, when you get home from work at the end of a long day, and you walk through the door, do your kids say, hey, dad's home? Or do they say, ha dad's home? That tells you right there whether or not you're doing your job as a dad. It's that personal world that will exasperate, has the potential to exasperate your children, to anger them. Um, because as men, we actually have to learn how to relate to people. I mean, we have men who are real social and men who are not. But for the most part, as men, we don't do too well in the relationship area. Women do a lot better. And so men aren't reading books like How to Be a Warm and Sensitive Husband or How to Be a Hero to Your Kids or What Women Wish Men Knew About Women. We, you know, okay, we, we've all kind of heard that stuff. Uh, there was a girly books, you know, we don't go there. Uh, we'll just figure it out as we go. And so we're object-oriented. We're task-oriented. I mean, from the time we were, we're little, we're growing up, we're putting things together, we're doing things like that. Um, women, on the other hand, are geared more to communication, 
They do very well with language and things like that. Little boys are more object-oriented. I mean, you give the kid a stick, what's he do? He runs, you know, that's what he does. That's just the way we're geared. And so we have those two different worlds, the positional and the personal world. And we need to make sure that in the personal world, dad, you're not exasperating your children. You're not provoking your children. But then he gives three quick kind of almost staccato commands. He says, first of all, bring them up. And that's our responsibility. It's not mom's responsibility. It's not the school's responsibility. It's not the church's responsibility, the youth group, or the the children's ministry. Your child is nobody's problem but yours. Dad. That's what this verse says. Bring them up. He's laid that right at your, your feet. What's that mean, bring them up? Nurture them to maturity. It means it's your responsibility to provide them with the basic necessities of life. It's your job. It's not the government's. It doesn't take a village. It takes a dad. To provide the food, the clothing, shelter, all of that. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for his immediate family, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's a powerful statement. But it's very important that we understand that we are tasked with the job of bringing up our children. And it says, train them up. It's a second positive statement there. Train, it's used to describe the process of educating a child. To take them out of the child's world and into the adult's world. That's really what that means. It was training, and guess whose responsibility it is? It's dad's. Be there not only to bring them up, but to provide the necessities of their life, but to train them up. It's talking about a child's position in the world, uh, to instruct them how to survive in this world. There's some basic things that we need to know as children if we're growing up, and it's the dad's job to provide that information. You know, you have to really lay aside all the nonsense you hear about quality time. I hear dads all the time say, well, I, I spend quality time with my children. I mean, to be honest with you, quality time is a joke. I don't believe in quality time. You can't plan quality time. It's one of those things that just happens. But it will never happen if you really bring them up and you train them up. It won't happen unless you spend time with them and instruct them. Instruct your kids. Don't exasperate your children. Bring them up. Train them up. Instruction. Instruction. You know what that deals with? It's kind of interesting. It deals with the child's will. It deals with his feelings, not his intellect. I've met a lot of parents who are really concerned about their kid's intellect, but they don't really care at all about their feelings. And they come across as very harsh and very demanding and very, you know, just, uh, just not considering the child's feelings at all. And God has placed that responsibility on us men to develop, develop our own child's personal world. And nobody can do it better than you, Dad. There's two simple principles. It's this, less time, less influence. Less time, less influence. Greater distance between you and your child, the greater the margin of error. Less time, less influence. The greater distance between you and your child, the greater margin of error. We're to bring them up, to train them up, to instruct them. Mom can't do it alone. God gave you the honor and and really the distinction, the blessing of having that part in your family. And when I started thinking about Father's Day, you know, sometimes it's hard to year in and year out. Sometimes we don't even preach a Father's Day message here. We just kind of go on with whatever we're going. But I thought this year we'd, we'd attempt one. And I thought, you know, the one father in all of Scripture that I could think of is found in Matthew chapter 1. And that's our text for this morning. Matthew chapter 1, 
I thought of all the dads in Scripture, I mean, I think Joseph is the one I kind of want to get to know a little bit about. I mean, if God decided to send his son to earth again today to be born as a baby, and if he was looking for a suitable home where the child would be properly raised, would yours be on the list, Dad? Good question. Consider only the the spiritual, the moral, and the relationship qualities that God would look, look for in that. I mean, from the human side, a couple could prepare the Savior for his ministry. But would your home qualify? I mean, why did God pick Joseph and Mary to, to have the Son of God be born into that family and to be raised by them? Why did he pick them? I mean, we would have thought that he would have picked somebody of prominence, maybe a priest or a rabbi or a prophet or a ruler of the country or something like that. Um, obviously he would want his only son to be cared for, be well taken care of, so maybe he would have picked a, a family that was comfortable financially that could take care of his only son. And since his son would need a first-rate education, I'm sure maybe he would consider picking a well-educated couple, a family that has their, their minds set on education and, and uh, instilling that information into their children. Because usually it's the best schools, the best opportunities for meeting the right people and having proper social upbringing that occurs. But God didn't do it that way. He didn't do it that way. He picked some obscure couple, unknown in the religious and the social circles of Jerusalem. Nobody knew these people. The man was not a ruler. He wasn't even a rabbi. The Bible tells us that he was a carpenter of no notoriety at all. Now, we know that this couple was poor because they offered a poor man's sacrifice at Jesus' birth, which was a pair of turtle doves or pigeons, Luke 2.24. As far as we know, they weren't really well-educated. We don't know that much about them, but they were common, working people living in this small, out-of-the-way village of Nazareth in the northern part of Israel known as Galilee. So this morning we're looking at Dad, so we're going to look at Joseph. And we're going to ask ourselves, why did God pick him out of all the other men in Israel for the incredible responsibility of raising his own son, the incarnate son of God? Let's look at our text, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. And just follow along as I read Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Now, not very much is written about Joseph in, in the Bible. Uh, but there's, there's some pieces here that we're going to put together this morning. I think the one thing I want you to get this morning, men, is that godly fathers are men of two things, conviction and compassion. Conviction and compassion. Those are two elements of being a godly father. And so, 
as I said earlier, we're focusing on fathers, but really that applies to all of us, right? As Christians, we all need to be people of conviction. We all need to be people of compassion. And so the first point in the outline there, godly fathers are men of conviction. Well, Joseph shows us four areas of his life where he held to be a man of biblical conviction. And as Christians, that's what we're concerned about here. We want to be hold ourselves to the convictions of Scripture, what it teaches. And the first thing, men, are, men of conviction have moral integrity. Look at what it says in verse 19. It says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man or a righteous man, is a good translation. He had moral integrity. That, that goes a long way. He follows God's moral law. He didn't do his own thing. He didn't believe in situational ethics. He didn't say, well, you know, the guys at work, they're not going to understand my Christian values, so I'm going to become somebody else and play their little game at work. And if I compromise, uh, you know, as long as people in the church don't find out about it, I'll be okay. (laughs) See, that's how we buy into that. No, he followed God's moral law. He didn't believe in situational ethics. He didn't believe in bending God's law to fit his situation, even though at times it's very painful and frustrating to be obedient. He still did it. He obeyed God's word. And in this situation, it was painful. The reason it was painful, it tells us that Joseph loved Mary. I mean, he was going to marry this girl. They were engaged to be married. Do you remember when you were engaged to be married? Just the other day, my wife and I had a conversation about you know, what it was like before we were married and what it's like after we're married. <laughs> a little different. It's just a little different. I'm just being honest. But you can recall those feelings when you were dating your spouse-to-be. It's a unique, unique time in life when you, when you go through that phase of life. As you look forward to living life together with men, as the, you look forward to living life together with the woman you love. See, back then they had little different customs than ours. We'd be mistaken if we thought that Joseph was not caught up with the same feelings he was. He was in love with his bride-to-be. He had that butterflies in the stomach when he saw Mary. Maybe his hands began to sweat a little. His voice got a little squeaky. See, according to Jewish custom, the engagement period lasted about a year before the marriage was consummated. But that period, it was taken very seriously. Much more seriously, I have to say, than our engagement periods are taken today. You have to understand, the couple could not terminate the engagement except by a bill of divorce, even though they weren't married yet. That's how serious it was. And any breach of faith faithfulness, any breach of that was viewed as adultery, even the smallest thing. So they were committed just as we are in our marriages after the wedding ceremony. They were just as committed before in the engagement period. And then in that context, think about it. Here's Joseph. He's in love with this lady. They're engaged to be married and he discovers that she's pregnant. Not a small matter. And he knew that he wasn't the father. Lessons from a Father, taken from Matthew chapter 1, and this is Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse from Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. And again, happy Father's Day. We trust the broadcast has given you some food for thought as we celebrate this day and what we celebrate about it. As we conclude our time together today, we do have a couple of ways that you might be able to contact us should you request a copy of today's program, or maybe you would like more information about us here at Graceful Truth. You can reach us if you're calling by phone at 650-366-9223. 
Again, you can reach us at 650-366-9923 or find out more online, gracefultruth.org. That's gracefultruth.org. One other note as we let you go today, we would invite you to join us, well, at least join Pastor Steve Converse this Tuesday, 5 to 7 p.m. on Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, a recent nationwide survey completed by the Barna Research Group determined that only 4% of Americans had a biblical worldview. More specifically, those respondents that identified either as born again or evangelical believers, well, the results were a dismal 9%. Although most people own a Bible and know some of its content, sadly, research has uncovered that most Americans have little idea as to how to integrate core biblical principles to form a unified, meaningful response to the challenges and opportunities of life. And that's what Lifeline this Tuesday evening is going to be all about. So join Craig Roberts along with Bay Area pastors, including our own Steve Converse, as well as Phil Howard, Napoleon Kaufman, and Brian Loritz. And it's a really frank discussion on living life from a biblical worldview. Again, that's this Tuesday from 5 to 7 p.m. right here on KFAX. The event will be broadcast live from Abundant Life Christian Fellowship there in Mountain View. So again, you're invited to spend some time with us on the radio this Tuesday evening as Steve Converse will be one of the many guests with Craig Roberts on Lifeline for a special edition broadcast live from Abundant Life Christian Fellowship in Mountain View. For further information, simply go to kfax.com or visit our website, again, gracefultruth.org. And then catch up with us next week, won't you, for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. Steve Converse.